This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Next47, the global venture firm backed by Siemens. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On March 27th, the Washington Post traveled to America's tech epicenter, the Bay Area, for the first time to convene the next installment of the Technology 202, a series of conversations about the changing regulatory climate and the relationship between innovation and public policy. In this segment, members of the Washington Post tech reporting team discuss the biggest technology stories of the day and how news priorities differ in DC and Silicon Valley. Let's listen. Hi again, everyone. So again, I'm Christina Pesariello, technology editor for the Washington Post. Um, you know, tech affects all of our lives and it's our role to help explain it make it relatable to all of our readers and viewers. Um, as Fred touched on a little bit earlier, uh, we're having a major expansion underway of our tech team that will enable us to do more of the great journalism that we're already doing um, and to make the Washington Post like the premier destination for tech news of all kinds. Um, we have a couple of our new members of our team in the audience today. We have Reed Albergati, who's covering consumer electronics, and Fez Sidiqui, uh, who's our new Future of Transportation and Automation reporter. Um, joining us on stage, we have several people you've already seen, and we are joined by Jeff Fowler, who's our tech columnist. Then we have Kat Zakruski, Tony Rom, and Liz Dwaskin. So I'm going to kick it off by just asking them a couple of questions, uh, but I'll remind everyone that you can ask questions of them as well, and I encourage you to do so. Um, do it on Twitter with the hashtag postlive. So we've heard from a lot of really interesting people today. Um, and you know, as we've been covering tech for the last several months, it feels like we're kind of lurching from crisis to crisis often in the industry these days. Um, a lot of talk of regulation and a lot of talk of like who's responsible for the kinds of problems we're seeing. What do you think in the relationship between DC and Silicon Valley, who is not pulling their weight? <laughs> I'll jump in. Uh, definitely Silicon Valley needs to up its game. When, uh, when Mark Zuckerberg came to Congress, I went to DC, I followed him. Um, I sat there and I watched the session with a, with a thing of popcorn, you know, watching every, every moment. And I, and I counted 45 times Mark Zuckerberg told Congress that we're in control of our data. That is just plainly not true. It's like saying that you could, anybody can fly a 747 because there's all these knobs and controls everywhere in it. So I think that Silicon Valley needs to be more honest about the situation it's in if we're really gonna make any progress. What about the view, what's the view from DC like? Both Tony and Kat are based in DC. So I would say coming here from DC, I would actually say Washington. And maybe that's just a bias based on the zip code I live in now. But I think that you know in DC, we realize that there's so many other issues going on right now, right? Uh, this week, people in DC aren't talking about the Apple event, they're talking about the Mueller report. And when you think about things like the government shutdown, and I just don't know that right now in DC that tech is enough of a priority. 
I sort of share Kat's view in all this. DC is certainly not pulling its weight. And just think of the timeline here. Jeff pointed out the Facebook hearings from uh, just a few short months ago. It's been more than a year since we learned about the Cambridge Analytica incident involving Facebook. And in that year, we have had no resolution to the federal investigation into Facebook. There has been minimal progress on a federal law uh, that would change the way the companies collect and monetize data. There have been a lot of hearings, but little action on some of the other issues in tech. Europe might be moving, but Washington hasn't really done a whole lot other than make a bunch of noise, which is something we're pretty good at, I guess, in DC. Yeah, I'll add to that. I mean, generally, the rule of thumb with companies is they rarely do anything unless they're forced to by law or by public pressure. And in terms of law, the, major the, the, the majority of laws that, quote, govern the internet, there are very few. They are 20 plus years old. Um, you know, the, the Section 230 carve out that gives, company, you know, gives companies large immunity for almost anything that gets published on their platforms that created the concept of the platform as a host without liability. Um, there has been, that has only changed, I think, one time. You're in, in 20 years, it's only been updated once uh, to include sex trafficking as, an, as a growing li liability for the companies. And then you have the Ch COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. That's a 20-year-old law as well, um, and we see kids addict, you know, addicted to devices. We see rampant data collection of children's data and no oversight. But there's something no. Alex Samos said earlier, which was that if the tech companies sit back and wait, they're going to get 87 different laws, which is not going to be better than them figuring out what really matters now and getting together and trying to make something happen yeah, so but, they can get behind. But, but Liz is right. Unless there's pressure from regulators in Washington, a lot of these changes won't happen. And if companies begin to see that the things that lawmakers are saying are things that they're not willing to back up with actual regulation. I think the power of that as a forcing mechanism is somewhat diminished. And Tony, I'm curious to hear like what the view is like from Washington. I mean, the tech companies, the tech giants are now the most powerful lobbyists um, in Washington. They spend more than anybody else. Um, what are they getting for their money? Yeah, so to the point of lobbying, I remember um, I've, I've been on the tech policy for about a decade, and there was a period of time when Facebook barely had a lobbying operation in D.C., and it had no political mechanism for donating to candidates. And I asked executives there uh, if they were ever going to launch what's called a political action committee, and they told me that they didn't need to. They were like, the most important tool that we have in our political toolbox is the fact that 535 members of Congress use us. And now, you know, here we are a bunch of years later, and they give a bunch of money, and they spend a bunch money to lobby uh, on a lot of this stuff. But I think with respect to regulation, the lobbying does have an effect at the end of the day. Uh, the work that lawmakers are able to do, the ideas that they're able to consider when they encounter this sort of significant opposition at a moment when there's such divisive politics, as Kat said, and Congress is so focused on other things from Russia uh, right on down to immigration, uh, there isn't just a whole lot of space to kind of weed, weed some of that stuff out to, to figure out the intricacies of policy. So it does have an effect and it slows down work. And then there's, I think what's also interesting is to see, especially Facebook, which um, I look at very closely, they've been um, doing these settlements recently with, especially with civil rights groups. That there was are, one just last week, There was right? one just last week where they settled with all these leading civil rights groups that had basically said targeted, you know, these civil rights groups basically said the fundamental premise of targeted advertising as we know it, targeting people by age, targeting by gender, targeting by proxies to race like zip code, um, all that should be illegal under civil rights law if it's for housing, employment, or credit types of ads. And for years they've been pressing Facebook to do it, and Facebook will never do that. I mean, we've, they'll, they'll never do that. 
You know, oh, but then suddenly there's all these court cases and they're in, this, and they're in the public eye and they're facing all the scrutiny and then suddenly they settle. And you know, what that settlement did was they ended up in voluntarily essentially changing that whole system. But what we don't get is the reckoning of was that legal or not? Like, what would the courts have actually said about that if there was more scrutiny? I mean, that, so they settled it privately and voluntarily. But we don't actually get a sense going forward of whether, what about for the next company that does targeted advertising? Where does that leave us? Now we're, of course, heading into this period of IPOs starting this week. And so we're seeing this next generation of startups maturing and, you know, really kind of grappling with these big questions um, in a way that's probably been different for them uh, for many years. Lizzie, you've been covering Silicon Valley for a long time. Um, how do you see the way that they're changing how they do business? Well, this next wave of companies is interesting because they're internet-enabled, but they're about the real world. Lyft is about the... Not, Slack is a software company, but you know, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, I mean, their whole thing was they were bringing tech enabled you know, approaches to, to real world problems. And everyone said, well, that's going to be much slower growing, much more expensive, come with a lot more legal liability. Um, and all that has turned out to be true. So what I'm interested in, I think, seeing one is whether um, this, when, when the companies go public, it's going to be a referendum on the value of these businesses, both financially and also to society. What was the true cost of all this venture capital money that poured into these companies to create them. Were, there, were they these, quote, unicorns that Silicon Valley has already talked about, or were they just really great ideas that were good businesses? Like, was, was the whole momentum worth it? Mm -hmm. We're also going to see public investors for the first time have to really grapple with some of these political risks and legal liability questions that for so far have really been limited to venture capitalists. And now as companies like Lyft and potentially soon Airbnb start trading, we'll see how Wall Street responds to some of the, their tactics when it comes to dealing with politicians. And, and safety and security remain huge problems for these companies, right? They really haven't solved. We've seen Uber and Lyft talk about, oh, we're going to share statistics about how often we get in accidents, how often people get attacked, but show me the money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one, one theme that we see a lot in D.C. regarding tech is that um, it's hard to understand how some of these, uh, how some of the technology works. I mean, every time that there's a tech hearing, we see that. And, you know, we see these lawmakers who go up there and ask questions as kind of basic users of the technology. So it seems like now that's, that knowledge gap is going to be even more critical as we go into more and more complex businesses. I mean, the septuagenarian senators get their fair share of, um, you know, memes for asking, how do you make business? <laughs> uh, how do you make money, Facebook? But honestly, it's a good question. Facebook needs to do a lot better job explaining to all of us how it makes money. All of these companies do. I think that's become one of the central questions that we need to ask about all of these companies. How are you making money? Because your business model is directly tied to how you're respecting my data, my privacy, all of these issues. Yeah, and, and Congress has sort of shot itself in the foot on this one. It's not like Congress couldn't create for itself the resources to think more critically about technology issues. There used to be a think tank within Congress 
that looked at this stuff. If you were a member of Congress and you wanted to study an issue, let's say artificial intelligence, you would refer it to the Office of Technology Assessment and they would do a study for you and they would report back to you and it would inform the work that you were doing as a legislator who was trying to hold companies accountable or was trying to write policy on cutting edge issues. And then Congress completely gutted that because of a political dispute between Democrats and Republicans over climate change. And there have been efforts to revive that in recent years, including right after the Facebook hearing uh, that Jeff just talked about. But once again, lawmakers couldn't even authorize a study to see if that office would be good to bring back, much less putting money aside for it. It was a multi-million dollar effort that Congress had, but they couldn't even put forward the effort to study it. And I think that says something about the bandwidth and the interest on Capitol Hill and some of this stuff. But one thing I think there is to watch on Capitol Hill is the generational shift that is going on. We have a group of young members of Congress who really rode into the hill using a lot of these social media platforms like Instagram stories to get there. And I think they're going to be a lot savvier on some of these issues and potentially drive some of the debate. That's a very good point. And I was to say, and for the first time in, in the course of having covered this for a long time, it's something we're talking about on the campaign trail as well. Mm -hmm. The 2020 candidates have tried to differentiate each other among the 4,000 running for the Democratic nomination right now by talking about things like antitrust, Elizabeth Warren saying that she wants to break up big tech companies, some of the other Democrats taking a more moderate approach to things like antitrust, everybody talking about privacy. These things weren't coming up in previous elections. Barack Obama was at Google headquarters showing off his tech savvy just you know 12 years ago. Just a couple of hours earlier today, Elizabeth Warren said she was behind the right to repair, mm -hmm. which is a, a sort of a nerdy tech insidery kind of thing. <laughs> until now, and now she might be reading Jeff's column. There you go. <laughs> it's true, but like I'm, I'm glad it's gotten come to this you know, level of national attention. But like, I would never have expected a presidential candidate. Yeah for 2020 to be talking about that. Jeff, you spoke earlier about the importance of understanding how our data is used and understanding the technology, um, and with Facebook in particular. But a couple weeks ago, we had this big announcement from Facebook about how it's um, gotten religion on privacy and it's gonna change the way that uh, our messaging works and, and make everything encrypted. But it's still difficult to, as a consumer, have an understanding of what this is going to mean for us and what it's going to look like. Liz, I'm curious, you've, been, you've followed WhatsApp for many years, which it feels like is kind of the model within Facebook for this. Where do you think this is going with Facebook? Uh, well, the first thing to say, and we did a story on this, is that Zuckerberg's whole thing about privacy and you know, his whole shtick it's really driving it is a business decision, not a privacy decision. The data says people are not using the big blue app nearly as much as they did. Growth is totally flatlined in the US and Europe. So really you see people already moving away from their, pub their public social network. And by the way, not all of them because Instagram is still exploding. So another thing he didn't mention in that whole 3,000 word essay, philosophical essay about privacy was hey, your biggest and fastest growing product is still Instagram, which cuts against the grain of everything you're saying. And so, um, but in terms of the private messaging, one, one thing that's interesting about it is it's almost like this retreat from responsibility because if it is true that Facebook leans in to more private messaging services, which again is where consumers are going anyway. So I think they're following consumers and calling it an innovation. They're calling it leading, but they're actually following the trends. So let's say that's where people are going anyway. And then they're saying, okay, we'll build encryption because we want to restore our brand. We want people to know that everything they're doing, we can't read it. So what happens then to all their efforts 
to scan misinformation, to weed out fake news. I mean, WhatsApp, as we know, in India, in other places in the world, was the biggest, was, was, the, was the fuel of fake news in the Brazilian election, in the Indian elections, and they had no ability to understand what was going on on their platform because it was encrypted. So now he's saying, okay, we're all about election integrity, we're pouring resources into cleaning up the platform, but then making an announcement, that, and a huge announcement saying we're completely changing the direction of our business in a way that's going to cut against the grain of their, it's going to stop their capabilities from doing that. Unless, and with Facebook there's always a backstory, unless really on the back end they are figuring out a way to scan that stuff and they're not telling us. Mm. In which case you have to look at um, how it's going to get more invasive in a way that People think they're getting more privacy, but it actually becomes more invasive. So that's what we're going to be reporting on. <laughs> and it shows that, that Facebook is going to become increasingly in conflict with Apple, right? Because the biggest risk now for Facebook is that iMessage is the most important social network in our lives. And Facebook is really trying to counter that with, with this move. So we're going to see a lot more butting heads between the two of them. So, Jeff, two days ago, we had the second most important tech event of the week in San Francisco. <laughs> After this one. After this one, uh, which was the Apple's um, March event down at its uh, headquarters in the Steve Jobs Theater. And, and we saw them moving away from hardware. They had no hardware at all in this uh, event for the first time. They're launching all of these kinds of services, um, including uh, one of the big features of it is that a lot of these services, their, their news app, um, their entertainment streaming service, are going to work on products that are not made by Apple. Um, so what, do you think we're going to get iMessage on our uh, Samsung phones at any point? I would not hold your breath on that. <laughs> but I think it's, it's showing that Apple realizes that uh, the jig is up with the iPhone. We know people are just holding on to these devices longer and longer, and they can't count on the every other year every, or even every three-year cycle of people um, getting a new iPhone, so they need a new business, and so the shift to services. That said, after a decade of covering these Apple launch events, this was by far the strangest one I've been to because I left it with so many open questions. Uh, how much is this thing actually going to cost me? Are they going to package it together like something like Amazon Prime? Didn't get an answer to that. Will their television bundling services save us any money, or will it actually just make things even more expensive than cable ever was. They really just didn't answer any of that. And so it was, it was kind of an underwhelming um, event. I think Oprah had the, the most honest moment of the day when she got on stage and she said, they're in a billion pockets, y'all, uh, which was true. And it showed that basically Apple's now trying to just extract the value out of being in a billion people's pockets. Right. <laughs> so Apple is going into services. They're going to do software like everyone, everybody else. Um, what do you see around the corner, though, in terms of exciting new things that we're going to see in technology? Is there any new hardware coming? Well, everybody in Silicon Valley and in Seattle and beyond is working on face computers, <laughs> uh, glasses of some sort. We have Microsoft with HoloLens. They have a new version of that. We know that Apple's working on some kind of augmented reality glasses. So we're really going to see a lot, of, a lot of focus on trying to make that work. That said, I've tried all this stuff, and it still has a long ways to go. So that... That is, at best, probably a 2021 kind of thing. So until then, um, it's just going to be an arms race on our phones to add even more cameras to the back of them, <laughs> and even larger screens, or even make the screens fold up, as we saw Samsung announce uh, last month. That'll, that's just right around the corner. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. Um, thank you so much all for coming. Thank you to all of our guests who made our first post-live event in San Francisco happen and such a success. And I hope you'll all join us out for the reception now. <laughs>
Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.